0: Uh, ko hari ingoa. I'm Richard, I'm part of this church, and we're just finishing up, thanks Jeff, we're just finishing up our series, Dear Church, looking at um, the letters to the seven churches in uh, what is in the Bible often called Asia Minor, but it's modern day Turkey, and uh, this is from the, just the first few cha- chapters of the uh, book of Revelation, right at the end of the Bible, and so I'm just wrapping up that, that series and uh, today's um, today's church that we're looking at is the church of Laodicea. I'll get to the Laodicea in a little moment, but let me tell you a little bit about an article I read recently. Uh, this guy called Douglas Rushkoff is this um, American expert in technology, a professor, and um, gets you know speaking gigs occasionally. But he said he got offered this um, speaking gig that was. Uh, like an exorbitant fee that he was being offered, 40000 American dollars to do this one lecture. And um, he said that's like half his year's salary. But he, um, so he took it and he, he, what he knew was that he was going to be lecturing to a bunch of wealthy people. Um, and when he turned up, it wasn't a whole bunch, it was actually just five um, sitting around a table. And they weren't just wealthy people, they were ultra rich, they were all billionaires. He doesn't say who they were. Um, And he said he didn't actually end up lecturing, they just wanted to pepper him with questions. And the first question they asked him was, Alaska or New Zealand? Where should we put our doomsday bunkers? And he thought, wow, okay, uh, that's quite a question. So he starts to talk to them about, um, you know, their plans for what these guys and this little subculture of billionaires that he started to explore and understand um, called the event. And the event is just some sort of massive catastrophe that they have calculated, these guys have calculated about, it has about a 20% probability of happening in their lifetime, um, and it could be like amaz- a massive pandemic, it could be, um, you know, uh, climate change and, and disasters that come from that, it could be World War Three. it could be AI taking over the world, and he says these guys are pretty like, they do watch a lot of sci-fi, and that tends to shake their views, um, and... As he dug into it a little bit, he started to find that these guys were a bit delusional. Now, these um, doomsday bunkers that they're building uh, are real. Let me just um, show you. So, there's like companies that sell these, um, and they're pretty, pretty glamorous. I mean, they look pretty amazing, just as houses. But these are bunkers um, built underground. Now, there's a rumor that this is like New Zealand is kind of a hot spot for these billionaire preppers. Um, but there's actually not that much evidence that that's actually happening, but supposedly around Queenstown and all this sort of thing. But they certainly exist in America and in Europe. And as Douglas Rushkoff started um, talking with these guys, he started to realize that their, their money, in a sense, has kind of created this delusion that they can live separated off from other people, that when, the, when calamity comes, that they'll be able to go into these bunkers with their families and um, be able to just survive because they're super wealthy, and so he says, you know, what are you going to do when all the other people who aren't billionaires but have survived come to your door and want your stuff? And he, they said well, we're going to hire Navy SEALs, and he said, well, wha- what, I- what are you going to pay them with if currency is no longer valuable anymore? And they're like, well, then they literally start talking about putting shock collars on the, the Navy SEALs, and and he and he starts going down, and he says like. Have you even thought about the scenarios here? Like, what about when your water supply gets contaminated? And they hadn't thought about that. They think about AI taking over, but not mundane things like water supply. And what he discovered is that their wealth had created this kind of delusional sense of self-sufficiency that they didn't need the rest of society. And instead of thinking about how they can use their wealth to avoid these kind of calamities and improve society, they're thinking just about how they can sort of hunker down literally in these bunkers with their family, divorced from others. Now, this delusion that Douglas Rushkoff picked up on, this idea that their um, wealth is kind of creating a, this illusion of uh, self sufficiency, is kind of the problem that the Church of Laodicea have. Now, it's not as extreme, and it's not so much that they w- believe they're self sufficient and um, don't need society but maybe a sense of self-sufficiency in their relationship to God, that maybe they don't need God. And in some ways, it doesn't take much imagination to think, well, that might also be a problem that we face in our own day and age. Let me just talk to you a little bit about Laodicea before we get into the passage. The passage, by the way, is Revelation chapter 3, for those of you who want to get there and get a head start. So Laodicea, like I said, it's a modern-day Turkey, and... um, It was a wealthy city surrounded by uh, good farmland. Uh, Apparently, they raised a lot of black sheep on um, this land because Laodicea was famous for black wool, and that was really sought after in the ancient world, and this was a core part of its economy, and it was a wealthy city. They had lots of um, flash buildings, uh, lots of monuments. They had a um, fancy medical school there. Uh, It was... uh, uh, a bit of a, um, you know, a, a luxurious place to be, and the church there is wealthy. So let's um, let's read our passage. Uh, we're not going to read it all in one hit. I'm going to do it in bits and pieces, just kind of working through it. But let's start at, um, at verse 14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, now just stop there for a second, Remember, so this is God speaking to John, the apostle, and asking John to write this down. These are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. Which is just a very revelation way of saying this is the words of Jesus Christ. These are the words of Jesus Christ. Okay, so these are the words. I know your deeds, that you're neither hot nor hot. Sorry, neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Now, you've possibly heard this passage before. It's one that we hear a bit, we quote a bit, and usually when we hear it, and sometimes when we explain it to others, we assume that what it's talking about here is passion or commitment, like if you're hot, then it's like you're really devoted to Jesus. If you're cold, you're hostile to Jesus. And the problem with the Laodiceans is that they're lukewarm. They're somewhere in the middle. Now, that makes a kind of intuitive sense when you read it. But this isn't what most biblical scholars think is the, the probably what John and Jesus means here. And in fact, when you think about it, it That interpretation doesn't really, it's not really airtight when you think about it because it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense that Jesus would prefer hostility to sort of indifference. So even that raises a bit of a question mark over that interpretation. But in order for us to understand what's probably meant here, we have to understand a little bit of the geography of Laodicea. So Laodicea, this is off Google Maps. So like I said, this is Turkey. Um, and Laodicea is that little red point at the bottom. And then uh, 10 kilometers as the crow flies, as you can see it's about 16 kilometers if you drive today. But about 10 kilometers north is this place called Pamakali. But in the ancient world, it's called Hierapolis. And Hierapolis was in the ancient world famous for its hot baths. And it is today as well. You can see modern-day tourists here. Um, those are So that's natural hot springs in this really unusual um, geological formations, um, little, little um, let me peek behind the curtain. When I was looking this up on uh, Wikipedia, um, at the bottom, you know, it says see also, and it has some sort of related links, and it said see also pink and white terraces um, in New Zealand. So the geological formation is probably a little bit like maybe what the pink and white terraces were like, but... Um, it's filled with really hot water. And in the ancient world, this was a bit of a a kind of a health mecca. You know, you could go there and bathe in these hot waters and it would be good for you. And even today, you know, hot waters and for some kinds of therapy are considered to be good. And so you have here, 10 kilometers north of Laodicea, this kind of health spa with really hot water. It's really useful for health reasons. Then... (coughs) Okay, again, so that red pin, that's Laodicea. But now if you go uh, 15 kilometers to the east, you end up at Colossae. And Colossae, you might have heard of Colossae because the book of Colossians in the Bible was written to the church there. And is at the base of these mountains, and it's on a river called the Lycus. And Colossae, this is the Lycus River, um, the Colossae had really cold or like cool river water like very refreshing mountain water, great for drinking, like really nice. And so you've got Hierapolis, just to the north, hot, medicinal kind of waters, really useful. Uh, just to the east, you've got Colossi or Colossian waters that are cool and crisp and great for drinking, very useful. But as this Lycus River goes, travels down, it gets to uh, Laodicea, and the water's lukewarm. It's not that great. In fact, there's a um, geographer in the ancient world, called, a guy called Strabo, who wrote about Laodicea water. And uh, he said, it's, it, you can drink it, but it's full of sediment, to paraphrase him. It's full of sediment. And as archaeologists have dug up the pipes around uh, Laodicea, they've found that there's like big limestone deposits inside these pipes. So to understand this passage, you've got to understand the geography. And it's really sort of saying, look... You're not hot water, like in Hierapolis, that's great for bathing in, and you're not cold water, like in Colossae, where there's nice mountain water, great for drinking. You're just lukewarm, just kind of nothing, just good for nothing, useless. That is what's meant by lukewarm here. But what has made them lukewarm? What's made them kind of good for nothing? Well, the passage goes on. You say, sorry, I apologize that hasn't come up very well on the screen. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. So their problem is their their wealth, but probably more specifically, it's the way their wealth has kind of shaped their relationship to God. Now, it doesn't say this explicitly in the passage, but this is kind of a biblical idea. If we look at um, Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 17 to 18, for example, it says, You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth, and so confirm his covenant, which he swore to your ancestors as it is to this day. And so there's this warning that to the people of God that if you become wealthy, you're going to be tempted to think that this wealth came from you and that you don't really need God. It hasn't come from God, that you are self-sufficient. And this is the kind of the spiritual danger, I guess, if you like, of wealth. Or at least it's one of them, and there's possibly a whole lot of them. But one of the dangers is that we've got it all And so we don't think we need God. And even if we pay lip service to God, functionally, the way we actually live our lives is as if we don't really need God. We've got everything we need in our bank account, in our homes, in our job, and in our lifestyle. And that's something that we face too. That's a a temptation that we face in our own day and age. Because the irony that is being pointed out here is that Although the Laodiceans are wealthy, they're actually kind of poor. There's a kind of poverty in their wealth, and it's probably coming from their sense of self-sufficiency. But, you know, the things that we, when we live in a time of wealth and um, affluence, and we live in a time and place like New Zealand, and we look at each other and we go, well, I'm not really that rich, you know, because my friends are doing better than me or whatever, but... When we take it all, uh, you know, in the grand scheme of things, when we look at ourselves in the context of the globe and in the context of history, we know that there's ridiculous wealth and we enjoy a ridiculous level of affluence. There's a temptation for us to, in subtle ways, to become self-sufficient and in a way to cut ourselves off from God, forgetting that it's God who sustains us, it's God who provides. And instead we think, it's me and my work and everything I've got right here that I can touch. But, you know, these things that we put our security in are not maybe as rock solid as we would like to think. We can be materially rich and spiritually poor. And when that happens, and we get under pressure, and maybe the things, the material stuff that we've put our faith in starts to look a bit shaky, then we're exposed and we realize that we don't have a lot of spiritual depth. And that's a problem. And I think that was perhaps what's going on with Laodicea because the church in Revelation is facing a test. The church in Revelation is being persecuted and it's possible that the Laodiceans, because of their wealth and their self-sufficiency, don't really have the depth to survive under pressure. It's kind of what Alan was saying before about the teabag sort of situation, putting it into hot water and then really seeing how strong it is. What we put our faith in can go just like that. There's a guy, uh, this guy's called Sam Bankman-Fried, and until about October, he was the 60th richest person in the world. This is just the most recent October. We're talking like three months ago. Uh, He was the head of a company, uh, like a cryptocurrency finance, exchange called FTX. It was like a really big one. It was worth $32 billion. And um, he was, you know, on the cover of all like Forbes magazine and so on uh, because he was incredibly wealthy himself, he had $27 billion um, personal net worth, and he was um, hailed as the king of crypto, and he was also seen as a real mover and a shaker in the world of philanthropy and doing great things, and he was kind of lauded as this kind of um, wunderkind. Uh, And he was only 30 years old, still only 30. Uh, But then in, uh, I think, uh, about November-ish, he was um, arrested for fraud and uh, money laundering. And within the space of a week, his company FTX, uh, basically, it went into bankruptcy. He lost most of his $27 billion fortune. um, And he's facing these charges that I mentioned before. And at the end of it all, he said, it could be worse. He said to a reporter, it could be worse. Pretty bad for him. Now, you might be thinking, okay, well, yeah, okay, so here's a guy who had it all and some, and then it went just like that. But he was also up to no good, it would seem. And people like that, you know, white-collar criminals and so on, they have it coming, and of course their whole, you know, their whole fortune is a house of cards, ready to tumble down. Fair enough. That's a fair point. But nevertheless, even for those of us who aren't involved in things that we shouldn't be in this sense, Nevertheless, what we put our security in instead of God is not as solid as we would like to think sometimes too. Think about our wealth. You know, we like to have money in the bank. We like to have stuff. It gives us a sense of security. And we live in a wealthy nation, and, and we are lucky in that sense. I don't know about you, but I've been seeing a lot of this the last few years, And, um, you know, it's not too drastic. You go past a few shelves and they're empty and you think, well, okay, I can live without that particular product and there's plenty of other food here. But it also makes me think, like, if this got much worse, you know, um, it's not really much point in having money in the bank if there's no food on the shelves. Honestly, I see this and I start thinking, can I eat grass? Like, can I survive on grass? Because if we have empty supermarkets, that's all I got I don't have I don't have a green thumb I don't have any kind of agricultural horticultural expertise so um, yeah that's what I was going through my head you know it's a small thing but you start to wonder you start to think about the fragility of you know our wealth and our our supply chains and the stuff that we've just kind of taken for granted you start to realize oh actually this can fall apart pretty easily Oh well, we got health, you know, we enjoy uh, advanced health care. Our lives are longer in general than they've ever been in human history. But, you know, we got used to seeing pictures like this over the last few years. This was from New York, you know. I mean, talk about a modern-day Laodicea, New York. This is where the billionaires are. And uh, here's just people being buried en masse outside of New York with diggers uh, just because so many people were dying from COVID-19. Well, we take peace. You know, we live in a very peaceful nation. I think New Zealand, last time I checked, was number two on the World Peace Index or something like that behind Iceland. So we, again, are very lucky. We're blessed to live in a very peaceful nation. And yet, it was just a year ago that we saw these kind of scenes happening outside of Parliament. And we think of our safety. You know, we live in, again, lucky. We live in a safe place on the whole. And yet this summer has been just unprecedented levels of flooding, particularly in the Hawke's Bay, but really all over. And we're not even sure it's over yet. And, uh, you know, you see in all these scenarios that these are the things that we rely on and in some ways put our faith in, if you like, and they can go just like that. We're a little more fragile than we realize. So we're vulnerable. And if we're like the Laodiceans, we could be found wanting when, when these sorts of things start to happen. We could be found that our roots are not all that deep in Jesus because in fact, we've been putting our faith in our stuff, in our lifestyle, in the security that comes with all that. I think there's something though for us to hear here. Going back to Revelation chapter three, Jesus says that those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. Now, that doesn't sound all that nice. And I think one way we can understand this, but I, I don't think it's the most helpful way, is that God is just sort of dishing out punishment to teach us lessons. I don't find that very helpful but if we look at what Jesus said, um, there was a situation in Jesus' time where a tower in Jerusalem, the Tower of Siloam, uh, fell over and killed 18 people. And when things like that happen, you know, people kind of wonder, like, what is God doing and what's this mean, you know? And, and Jesus said this those 18 who died when the Tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? So he's saying, you know, do you think that there was some sort of, like, they were sinners or there was some sort of, like, reason for that that we can figure out? And he says, I tell you, no. But notice this. He doesn't give an answer. He doesn't say, well, this is why it happened. Instead, Jesus teaches, so, um, treats this as a teachable moment. And he says, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. The point is not why it happened Is God behind this? But what can God do with this moment to teach us? Or how might we respond in such a way that God can teach us? It's a teachable moment. You know, um, this week I was getting my haircut at a barber and when I finished up and stood up, the next person in line at the barber um, was a little boy and his mum. And his mum I recognised. And it took me a second to remember her name, but I said, Kelly. And it was a girl that I'd gone to school with, and I hadn't seen her since school. And I had to refresh her my name, was obviously not that memorable, but I said, up oh, Richard Goodwin, and she, oh, yeah, yeah. And we started reminiscing a little bit. And pretty much the first thing I said to her was, you remember when I broke your arm? And she was looking really, like, blank, like, no, I don't remember that at all. And I was like, yeah, you know, at intermediate school, Cambridge Middle School, we were 12 years old, and I broke your arm. And uh, she said, I remember my arm was broken. I just didn't remember that you did it. And I, so I told her the story of how it happened. She said it was actually only just fractured. It wasn't broken. But, but what happened was um, my friend, who was kind of an alpha male, um, had this cool hat. He always had cool stuff. And she, I, I don't know what, if there was some sort of sparks going on between them, but she took his hat and ran away with it giggling. And I look at it and I go, my friend, he's an alpha male. I'm a dweeb. I can maybe just raise my social standing just a notch if I just chase her down and get that hat back for him. Because he's standing there and he's kind of going, oh no, she's taking my hat. That really sucks. And so I just run after her, rugby tackle her to the ground, and get the hat back. And I walk away and I turn around and, and she's crying. And all her friends are gathering around her and picking her up and they take her off to the sick bay. And I started to worry at that point. Gave the hat back, though, but I started to worry, and I went home that night, because she wasn't in class. She was in my class. She wasn't in class for the rest of the day. (laughs) I know. (laughs) And if you'd said that to me at that time, it would have resonated with me, because I went away for the weekend, and I was just brooding over this the whole time. Didn't tell anyone. And then I got back on the Monday of a weekend of torture, and she walked in with her arm in a cast, and I said, I'm so sorry. And she said, it's okay. I just told everyone that I fell over. And I felt good. And I don't know what you think, like, you ethicists out there think of this whole scenario, but I'm telling you, I, I felt guilty until I knew I wasn't going to get in trouble, and then I felt good. <laughs> um, now, imagine it was my habit of going around and tackling girls, just my thing. And you came up to me and you said, don't tackle girls. I'd say, no way, man. That's my thing. I'm going to keep tackling girls. But then... I tackle Kelly, knock her to the ground, break her wrist, and uh, break her arm, and I'm feeling really bad about it. And you came up to me then, and you said, hey, I don't think you should go around tackling girls. Then I would have thought, yeah, you're actually right. In fact, you wouldn't even need to say it to me. As far as I'm aware, I never did that again. Because that, that moment where I saw the natural consequences of my actions was a teachable moment. It's not that anyone much less God caused that to happen necessarily. It's just that these were, this is what became of my actions. This is what has happened. And there's, a, there's something to be learned in that moment. And I think this is the kind of idea here in Luke 13, that this, this tower falling, it's a teachable moment. It's a moment for us to go, hold on, how are we living our lives? Now, we've been hit by crisis after crisis the last few years. These are teachable moments. We are living through one gigantic teachable moment. So the question is, how are we going to respond? In Revelation chapter 3, it says, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We can have a teachable moment, and miss it, because we don't really have the ears to hear. We're not listening. We're not willing to learn. Mark Gardner, one of the elders here, often, I often hear him say, don't waste a good crisis. You know, and, and in a sense, we've been li- living through various crises. And if we just um, stop our ears to what God might be saying to us in this moment, we are wasting a good crisis, a chance for us to hear a word of correction from God. And what Revelation 3 says our response is to be, is to be earnest and repent. Repent is like having a change of mindset of going, hey, you know what? Maybe I have been putting my sense of well-being and security in all that I have and all that I enjoy, and maybe it's not really rooted in God. Maybe we need to open up our ears to what the Spirit might be saying and trying to teach us in this very teachable moment. It's possible to ignore God's rebuke. It's possible for us to close our ears and we don't want to be ones who waste a good crisis. This passage is also famous for these lines. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Sorry, let me start again. Here I am, I stand at the door, and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they will they with me. So what about you? Have you come to rely on your stuff rather than God? Jesus gives us an invitation. Have you become self-sufficient? Jesus has a word of rebuke for us. Have you forgotten your fragility? Jesus has a path of correction for us to follow. Have you become lukewarm? Jesus calls you to be useful. God is speaking. Will you listen? This is a teachable moment. Are we listening and willing to learn. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray to you as the amen, as the good and true witness. We thank you for salvation. We thank you for your love for us. And we just want to confess that in many ways, often we forget about you or we at least um, push you to the sides And when it comes to our sense of what sustains us in this life, sometimes we put our trust in the things around us and the things we have instead of in you. I pray that as we are confronted with various crises in our world that we would see these as teachable moments, moments for us to tune in to what you might be saying to us and what you might be calling us to. We want to be people who, whether we have a lot or little, we have real depth in you. But we can't do that on our own. We need the help of your Holy Spirit. So we ask for that in your name and in the power of the Spirit. Amen.